What going on, everybody? This is Rafiki, and welcome to Power Beats, a podcast that will take you to the West Indies and beyond with powerful short stories written by yours truly. Here, we will also dive into the history, culture, and literature of the region I call home and the parts of the world that help build it into what it is today. Hey, everybody. I hope you guys are doing well. I hope you guys had a wonderful Christmas if you celebrate. I think Hanukkah and Kwanzaa, um, I think Hanukkah's done, but I think Kwanzaa is now fully commencing. So if you guys are celebrating any of these holidays, I hope you guys are enjoying them. Um, Christmas at this time, like past three days ago. And I had a great Christmas. Um, I'm really excited because I'm going to be seeing WizKid um, in March. I'm a huge Afrobeats fan, huge Soka fan, of course. Um, and I would still say I like Soka and Dancehall more than Afrobeats. Even though I listen to Afrobeats more, I think I wrote an article about this, um, about why like Afrobeats are so popular and Soka is still so regional. Um, maybe I'll include that in the link. I mean, in the description of the episode, but I like Afrobeats, Soka, Dancehall, you know, all those kind of like Afro and then Caribbean things. Um, so I'm really excited to see WizKid perform in person. I've heard good reviews. I really want to see Burner Boy perform in person. But, you know, one thing at a time. I've been listening to Afrobeats for so long. And um, I grew up with a lot of Nigerian kids. So a lot of my close friends were either Caribbean or Nigerian. So I feel like I was listening to Afrobeats before it really got popular and really cool. Um, I like to say that anyway. Um, But, yeah, so that was, like, my biggest Christmas gift. That's one of the, like, ones I really liked. I also got a book, um, which I'm going to, like, talk about a little bit later. But I enjoyed my Christmas. Um, I have, like, certain Christmas traditions that, like, I've developed with my partner. So, like, we watch, like, like Christmas-related movies or, like, Christmas-related horror movies. So, like, Krampus. I don't know if you guys have seen Krampus before. It's pretty old. I think it came out, like, 2016, 2015. And basically, it is a horror movie inspired by Christmas, inspired by a real Germanic tale of Krampus, which is a, like, Germanic spirit that um it's kind of like the dark side of of santa claus and essentially he comes around when no one has christmas spirit and he ends up like killing people and it's 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 supposed to be deeper than that but like the the origin the fable is quite interesting um and it kind of just goes to show i think most people know now that like christianity doesn't live in a vacuum i mean nothing does and obviously like me studying the caribbean and you know africa like I know that Christianity has been influenced by, like, African religions, but even when you look at, like, Christian history in Europe, you see that Christianity does not exist in a vacuum. Like, you have, like, deities, not deities, but, like, you have, like, entities like Santa Claus, which come from, like, other entities like Krampus, you know, Yule and, like, Christmas are, I guess, one in the same, where they were brought together, and that's how Christmas came about. Um, So, I think it's all very interesting, but... These weren't things I grew up doing. I didn't grow up watching, like, horror movies for Christmas. That's something my partner likes to do. Um, and I'm shocked that there's so many, like, Christmas-themed horror movies. I think there's a new one out called Violent Night. I'm supposed to see that soon, but I haven't seen it yet. Um, but, of course, like, my dad is from Guyana. My mom's parents are from Grenada, specifically Karakou. So I grew up having a very Caribbean Christmas. So, you know, soca music. We have, like, Christmas-themed soca music and stuff. But I think the biggest... Thing I did when I was younger was like waking up Christmas Day, eating um, or opening my presents and eating breakfast. So we didn't really have like Christmas dinners. We had like Christmas breakfast. My mom would bake bread um, like from scratch. And the biggest thing was like garlic pork and pepper pots. So those are like big Guyanese traditions. We only eat garlic pork or at least in my family, we only eat garlic pork um, on Christmas Day. Like we would get it from our grandma. She would like season it and marinate it and everything and then we would have pepper pot so pepper pot is like um a famous dish in Guyana I think it has Native American roots and so it's a very hot spicy dish it's made with all kinds of meat but I think traditionally it was actually made with capybara I saw a YouTube video on it on the history when Gordon Ramsay he visited Guyana and he was like that's you're cooking like a rodent and the guy was explaining that yes but it comes from the um, Amerindian people of Guyana, 
um, originally. But people make pepper pot with like a bunch of different meats, if I'm not mistaken. And it's pretty good. I don't eat it very often. It's a big Christmas thing. Obviously, people eat it at other times, but um, it has it has similarities to other Caribbean dishes. I think in Belize they have a like some type of black like soup, like it's a very gravy-like dish, and it's very similar to pepper pot. And I think Jamaica has a similar dish as well, but I'm not quite sure. But that's kind of how my Christmas went and how I celebrated Christmas growing up. I wouldn't say it's that different from how most people celebrate Christmas. Um, I did also spend Christmas Eve with my neighbors, and, you know, they are Dominican and Puerto Rican, and I've noticed that Hispanic people or Latino people open their presents on Christmas Eve. And that's something I had heard from, like, many Hispanic friends I've had, like, from El Salvador and Ecuador and different places. But it was interesting because we were at a party and it's, like, midnight and everybody's opening gifts. And it was just very, very interesting. Instead of getting up early to open presents, you're opening gifts late at night and then sleeping in the next day. I don't think it's a bad way to do it. I think it's kind of nice. Um, but I'd probably still stick to opening my gifts on Christmas Day. So I already talked about my Wizkid tickets, but another gift I did get um, was this novel called Catch-22 um, by Joseph Heller. It's like a war novel. Apparently it's really famous. They're making a like Hulu, a series, a TV show series on Hulu. Um, and it's like, you know, set in like one of the world wars and something like that. And I love to read. I'm getting back into reading now that I'm done with school. Um, not only for my own enjoyment, but because I know that to be a good writer, you have to read a lot. Um, you can't be a good writer if you're not studying the craft of other writers. Um, and so I got this book as a gift because my friends, they knew I liked to read. Um, but I didn't specifically tell them what I liked to read, um, which was cool because I got something different. Um, so I'm like 50 pages in. The book has like 600 pages. It's really long. Um... And, of course, like, because of the time it's set in, like, there are racial slurs, you know, like, it's, like, a fiction novel set in the real world, which is fine because my writing now has become more, you know, cemented in the real world. But what I'm saying is it's not exactly what I usually read, but I'm still going to read it just to understand why this book is so critically acclaimed. Um, however, I think that, like, I don't know too much about Joseph Heller. But I'm going to assume that he's a white author. And, you know, what is critically acclaimed? What is seen as, you know, the best writing or really the best anything? I mean, it's only now recently changing to reflect diverse demographics. I mean, that's not a groundbreaking observation. Um, but I'm still going to read it, you know, just to see what it is. I think to be well read, you have to read things that, you know, are outside of your usual, you know, maybe purview, if that's the right word. Um, so that includes books, whether they're written by authors you wouldn't normally look into, or even authors from other countries, authors who write in other languages. I don't think people really think about that. You know, most, I would say, maybe not most, but a lot of people have like a few authors they are very fond of, like from childhood or maybe from their time in school. And then beyond that, they don't really read. Um, but that doesn't mean they're not well read. But I mean, I think a reader should read as many books as they can from as many different writers as they can, even if the book they're reading had to be translated into their language. Um, I think that's what makes a person well-read, but I'm sure that could be argued with certain people. So that's one book I'm reading. I'm actually reading a second book at the same time, and this is a book I've had my eye on for maybe almost a year now, if not maybe a little longer, a little shorter. It's this book actually focused on Guyana specifically. And it is called Comfa Religion and Creole Language in the Caribbean Community by Keen Gibson. So to kind of break that down, Guyana is where my dad is from in South America. And it is a fairly decently sized country, but its population is not very large. Guyana is in South America. I think it's, the, it's actually the only country in South America to speak English as its official language. Of course... You know me, I'm going to break it down and say that um, Guyana has like multiple languages. Obviously, Guyanese English Creole would really, to me, be like the official language. But of course, you go off what the government says. And, you know, in this day and age, at the end of 2022, I think a lot of 
Caribbean countries are working on recognizing um, Creole language as an official language. I think it's become more common from what I've seen in like Francophone Caribbean countries. And when I say this, I'm not talking about the people. I think Caribbean people as a whole are knowledgeable on the fact that like the way we speak our languages is different from the standard. I see this a lot with like Barbados and the people in Barbados. They refer to their Creole as just dialect. Um, I see this in Dominica. Um, and Dominica is unique because they have English Creole and um, French Creole. But in Guyana's sense, they call it Creolese from what I've seen. There's a YouTuber I follow. Her YouTube channel's Awi Story Got Melody. So all of our stories have melodies to them essentially so the name of her podcast of her youtube channel is actually written in guyanese english creole um so there are people working on breaking it down and acknowledging it and baking it up you know for formal recognition but for the general world people would label guyana as an english speaking country and so this is where my dad is from and his family my dad was born in georgetown guyana um, which is the capital right by the coast and then my dad's mother was born in Bartica, Guyana, and his father was born in Burbies, Guyana. So Burbies is kind of famous because of the Burbies slave revolt, which happened in the beginning of Guyana's history, which I'm actually going to touch it, touch on a little bit in this episode. I'm trying not to bounce all over the place, but I say all of this to say that the second book I'm reading by King Gibson um, is focused on one of Guyana's religions, specifically one of its African um, African diasporic religions. So, like how Karaku has the big drum dance, also in Asarika, Guyana has Kumfa, but that's like an old Creole term for the religion. In the modern day, it is called Faithism, and it is practiced by less than 1% of the Guyanese population, almost everyone who practices this religion is Afro-Guyanese. However, um, like Karaku's Big Drum Dance and like other African diasporic religions, um, it has been influenced by different groups of people. However, I think in Guyana's case, it's more unique because you see in Karaku, it is influenced by different ethnic groups of African people. But in Guyana's case, it is influenced by different racialized groups. So you have different nations in the religion, um, which are broken down between the seven groups of Guyana. So you have the English. Guyana is now or was an English colony before that it was Dutch. But you have the English. You have the Africans. Generally, these this nation is broken down between like Congo and then just general African. You have the Buck, which is our term for Native American people. Then you have the East Indians, um, and you have the Dutch. Interestingly enough, the Dutch nation in the religion is not what we think of as Dutch people. They're not necessarily white spirits. They're considered to be black spirits, like the African nation, um, because of the presence of Suriname right next to Guyana. Suriname used to be called Dutch Guyana, and Suriname has several recognized um, tribes of people, which used to be um, what we call maroon, so enslaved Africans who fought for their freedom, ran away, and established their own independent communities. Specifically, the Dutch nation in this Guyanese religion um, is supposed to represent the Juga spirits, which is a current tribe within Suriname of maroons. So very interesting. And then you have the Chinese because there was Asian immigration forced immigration to the Caribbean. That's why you have the presence of East Indian people and Chinese people, as well as others. And then you have some other nations, which some might not recognize, like the Spanish, um, as well as the Portuguese. So these are the seven nations. Um, I think I might have said eight, only because the English were brought in. But most people recognize seven. I don't think most people recognize the English. Um, but these seven nations make up like the background of this religion they essentially represent the different groups of ancestors people might have um and that's just like a a tiptoe into what this religion is it is still practiced today it's believed to have about 
maybe 10,000 members between Guyana, London, or specifically the UK and New York, where I'm at. Um, and I actually know a woman who practices this as well. So I've been learning from reading this book um, by King Gibson, as well as talking to this um, friend of mine to better understand Guyanese tradition and Guyanese culture, not only to better understand myself, but just to keep history um, well recorded and to keep it moving forward. So that's kind of something I've been reading. I'm essentially reading two books at once. I'm more so focusing on the second book, um, the Kumpha book, but I'm probably going to have to reread that because I'm taking notes on it as well um, because I would like to kind of do something similar with what I learn in that religious tradition to inspire my writing, like how I'm currently doing with Karaku's Big Drum Dance. So today's episode will be the start of the Cromanti collection, which I'm going to get into. But before I do that, I kind of wanted to talk also about my writing journey in 2022. I'll probably touch on how it started. I mean, I started writing really young um, in high school. And I've always been good at writing even before that. But I wrote my book, Radiance Lost, while I was in the 10th grade. I finished the first draft in eight months. And I just kept editing, revising, editing, revising, and ended up finally publishing in 2021. So in what I would still consider to be the thick of COVID, at the time I was living in Metro Atlanta. So the laws on COVID regulations were not that strict, but definitely had a serious lockdown for maybe a month. <laughs> And it doesn't sound that serious compared to other things. But based on what was happening, I was able to really focus on school and writing and my job. And I was able to finish my book. And so that was the biggest thing I feel like I've ever done as a writer. Um, and it's been, it'll be two years that the book has been out by February 16th or February 21st. I can't remember which exact day it is. I think it depends on the format. The publishing date is listed differently. But it'll be almost two years since I published my novel. And I've also been blogging on Medium, which is an extension of Twitter. I know there's been a lot of conversation around Twitter falling apart. Um, it has not quite fallen apart yet. I'm not a fan of the person running it, but I'm not going to really get into those kind of things today. Um, but yeah, I do a lot of my writing on Medium. And then I put a lot of energy into my novel that was published. I've written another novel that's unrelated to that one it just has not been published yet and I am working on a sequel here and there and obviously now I'm working on this podcast which is going to be like a compilation of different Caribbean and African inspired short stories so a lot of different things in the air at once but that's essentially my writing journey where I started and where I'm at now so I think I'm not even sure where I I'm expecting to find myself by the end of 2023 when it comes to writing. I think I've kind of taken the pressure off of myself when it comes to like expectations of where my words are going to get me. And that doesn't mean I don't expect anything from my work, but it's more so when you make your passion your job, it can no longer become your passion. And so I like to think about my success as a writer afterwards, not while I'm currently writing. Um, I just want to create the art and get it out there. So like, for example, I never really checked the stats of my blog. I never really checked my cumulative stats. Um, but I checked like two weeks ago, maybe to see like how many reads I've gotten over time. And in nearly three years of blogging, not quite, but almost, I have written 150 pieces and had a, over 11,000 people read my work, even if it was just one time. And even though I know that the bulk of my stories are focused, or the bulk of my reads are focused on certain stories, I don't think that really takes away from my writing. But it's nice to see how my work has like gone so far, but it's still not a focus of mine. So even with the book, I, I don't really focus on... Um, how many like people have bought it or I don't focus on how many people listen to this podcast. It's really just for the sake of creating it. Um, and that's honestly how I want my writing journey to continue into 2023 and so on. 
So for the next nine episodes, including this one, we were, we are going to be diving into what I'm calling the Cromanti Collection. So this collection is inspired by the Cromanti Nation um, of Karaku's big drum dance tradition. But I wanted to point out the fact that the Cromanti people um, are not unique to Karaku. There are Cromanti um, influences in Guyana, in Suriname, in Jamaica, especially in Haiti. Um, and so I wanted to give a little background into who the Cromanti are um, and how they influence the, the Caribbean today. So I'll be honest, the term Cromanti is kind of archaic. I only use it because of its current use in Kyaraku's big drum tradition, as well as for historical context. But um, Cromanti is used to describe like an amalgam of a Khan people, and it is derived from the name of a um, slave fort in what is now modern day Ghana that was named Fort Coromantine um, in the Ghanaian town of Coromanti. Um, in central Ghana, I believe, based on um, what I've like researched and found. So prior to becoming um, enslaved in the European slave trade, the Cromanti were usually part of a highly organized and stratified um, amount of Akan groups, such as the um, Ashanti Empire and the Fonti Confederacy. So very notable within Western African society, and they continue to be notable within Caribbean society, even during the ongoing slave trade. Um, so within West Africa, um, Akan states were not all the same, but there are 40 different groups. And in the mid 17th century, so 1600s, probably around 1650, they did share a common political language and culture. Um, and they also had a shared religion known as Akom. So I believe in Ghana, they speak Twi. Um, I'm not sure if, I know that's not the only language that they speak. And I'm sure that there are Akan people that speak Twi. Um, but I'm not sure if that is the indigenous language of those people. Um, but I do know a little bit about Akom. Akom is the traditional um, religion of the Akan people. So it's interesting how those words Akan and Akom come together. Um, and so like Ifa, for those who are familiar with Yoruba religion, you you do have God, you have the Supreme Creator, um, and then you have a bunch of intermediary spirits that work under God that people interact with because humans think that God is um, very distant and he cannot be like um, directly contacted. And so for those that might feel like that's a very strange and foreign idea, you have something similar in Catholicism. I wouldn't say that God in Catholicism is super far away, but the idea of intermediary spirits, be they saints or angels, um, that's not a new concept. And so even though they have all these different moving parts, as I'll call them, they're still I think considered a monotheistic religion because there is a supreme um, creator. So that's kind of how a comb works, the traditional religion of Akan people. Obviously, because of the presence of Islam in West Africa, undoubtedly there are Akan people who were Muslim, um, not only in West Africa, but within the Caribbean. And through that transatlantic slave trade, they were forced to give up any traditional African religions as well as their Islamic faith. And I don't think people really talk about that, but Islam has also had an effect on um, the African diaspora as well. And we don't really think about that because in the black diaspora, most of us identify as Christian um, in some way, shape or form. So that's very, very interesting. But the Cromanti, the Akan, I'm probably gonna use both terms, very notable within the West Indies. You see them in Jamaica with um, Jamaica's only heroine, um, Queen Nani of the Maroons. I love the story of Queen Nani. One of my favorite um, Jamaican artists, her name is Shensia. In one of her songs, she says, Nani never go a war from a sit-on in a 2020 slavery. And basically, if you don't understand what that means, she said that Queen Nani did not go to war with the British for her to sit in a abusive and toxic relationship in 2020. Um, 
So Queen Nani, she is very, very well known within Jamaica. I believe that she's on one of the bills within Jamaica. And I think it's the $100 bill. I could be wrong. Um, I forgot. I was listening to another podcast and that person had visited Jamaica and was sharing information on Queen Nani that they had learned. And they had said that the tour guide had told them that Queen Nani was um, on one of the Jamaican dollar bills, I think the $100 bill. So if you're in Jamaica and someone says, can you give me a Nani? I beg you for a Nani. They're asking you for $100. If you are Jamaican um, and that is incorrect, please let me know. Because um, I would definitely like to know for my own um, knowledge in the modern day. But I do know a bit about Queen Nani's history within Jamaica. She fought a war with the British for nearly two decades. I think it was 19 years. And she led a group of Maroons, so enslaved Africans who became free. Um, they were known as the Windward Maroons against the British for this time. She was revered as a famous Obia woman. So Obia in the West Indies, I know I've talked a little bit about Caribbean religions such as Guyanese Kumpha and Karaku Saraka. But Obia itself is a term used without the British West Indies, but even in countries like Suriname, which are considered Dutch, um, to represent black magic, you know, um, so like voodoo. And that's how it is seen by Europeans and how it was passed down um, into general Caribbean culture as um, enslaved African people were um, Europeanized, in a sense, through slavery. Um, and stripped of cultural and religious values. Um, so Queen Nani was known as an Obia woman. And she was also known to be a Khan. She was known to be Cromanti. And you'll see that in a lot of slave revolts in the West Indies. Even in Guyana. They seem to be led by Akan people. I would say that from what I have heard. From what I've read. The Akan and the um, Congo people. They were the ones really leading a lot of slave revolt so it's very very interesting but to focus on the Akan the Cromanti and Queen Nani story she led a fight against the British for nearly two decades and she used Obia to do it the British wrote accounts of how they would shoot at her and her maroons um, her followers and the bullets would not hit and you know at the time the guns are not very accurate anyway but she supposedly according to the story she had the ability to take bullets and fire them back with deadly accuracy without any guns. And the way she did it was with Obia. So she would take the bullets and she would put them in Shibak's side. She put them in Shibam Bam and she would fire them. So for each bullet that they fired, she could fire two. And she was beating the British left and right. They were getting very upset about, you know, slaves defeating them when they think that African people are dumb and uncivilized and all these other things. And so there are also accounts of Queen Nani having like a pot, like a cauldron that never stopped boiling, even though there was no fire on it. And she would like throw like British soldiers into it and things like that. I mean, she was feared. She was feared. Her Obio was real serious some real nasty walk. Um, and Obia scared Europeans in general, not only because of the religious, you know, idea, I think that wasn't really the biggest thing. It was the fact that it was getting African people to come together. It was giving them hope. The same way we see how church has been used to organize black movements in the American South and in the Caribbean. So the idea of faith bringing people together, that is not new. That is not a new concept. And this happened with traditional African religions such as Obia. Um, because even Obia, how it is understood by Europeans and by Afro-Caribbean people is different because Obia can literally be anything and everything to a European person. They were even labeling Hindus when East Indians were brought to the West Indies as Obia men and Obia women. Um, but Obia is like, essentially, it can be negative, it can be used for harm, and it can be used to heal. Um, but without getting too much into it, that is how Queen Nani fought off the British for so long. And one day she was defeated because one of her followers got kidnapped. And as I would say, as my dad would say, it was like he probably be because he talked too much. Um, hence the name of this podcast. But essentially they captured this guy and 
he was going on and on about how they would never beat Queen Nani, how she was undefeatable, how um, they would just never conquer her. They'd never figure out her secret. And in the time that he's bumping his gums and just going on and on, he gives up the secret on accident. He tells the British how they, how Queen Nani takes the bullets and puts them inside her backside to, fi- to fire back at them. And so one day the British supposedly put poison on the bullet. So when they were shooting at her and the bullets aren't hurting her and she's storing them in her body, the poison seeps into her body and she ends up dying. And that is how Queen Nani, um, if I have the story correctly, dies and how she loses to the British after nearly two decades of fighting. The Maroons within Jamaica are still very much alive to this day. They're actually having an ongoing battle with Jamaica's government due to bauxite mining. So bauxite is a mineral that is used to make aluminum, if I'm correct. Um, it was very prevalent in the West in the West Indies, um, a big source of income in the 1900s, but has since then died out with the rise of tourism and other things. However, Jamaica's government still wants to mine bauxite. And I know I'm going on a t- tangent here, but since we're talking about um, Cromati people and the Maroons who they are descended from in Jamaica, um, the these Jamaican Maroons are still fighting against the government because of bauxite mining, how it damages their lands, and how it ultimately damages the island of Jamaica, um, especially their water table, so their clean water. Jamaica has, you know, the wet and dry season, and where they're mining, it is disturbing the water that is used to carry the island through the dry season. And so they are currently dealing with this issue. You can find videos on this topic on Vice, on YouTube, if you're interested in those kind of things. But to tie this all back to the Cromanti people, as you can see, they are very prevalent in the West Indies. So that is how they are um, observed in Jamaica. There's even a form of Creole in Jamaica that's no longer spoken that was based off of Twi, so based off of a language spoken in what is now modern-day Ghana that comes from these um, Cromanti and likely other people. Um, so very interesting on how, very interesting information on how the Cromanti are prevalent in places outside of Karaku. In Karaku, they, there's not as much history on them, I would say, in that aspect, but Cromanti people in general were known to dominate plantation society. So if there were more Cromanti people on a plantation than maybe Igbo or Yoruba or whichever, they would cause other African groups to submit to their ways of doing things. And you kind of see this within uh, within Karaku's big drum dance because the Cromanti songs, especially one Cromanti song in particular, um comes first at every big drum ceremony, at every saraka. And this is a beg pardon song. So you have certain songs within the big drum dance that are done um, to essentially pray for the forgiveness of the community's sins. And the very first song is for Anansi. So for those who don't know, Anansi is the spider god of West Africa, particularly the Akan people, the Cromanti people. He is seen as a folk character to a lot of people in the Caribbean and Brazil and, you know, the United States. Funny enough, I think I mentioned this in one episode, Anansi becomes Aunt Nancy in Louisiana. His name becomes corrupted and his gender changes from that of a man to that of a woman. Um, so he's very well known. He's um, a trickster spirit. So he's always getting into it with other people, using his intelligence to outsmart enemies and opponents. However, he also falls victim to other tricksters, such as Br'er Rabbit in the American South, um, Aguti in the Caribbean. I think that one might be specific to St. Vincent. It's essentially a rodent, but he ends up tricking Aguti. So that's another trickster that he deals with. Even in Suriname, um, he is part of that religious tradition within there known as Winti that is still practiced and in the folk stories Anansi is friends with Mamiwata which is essentially a water spirit but he ends up getting in a lot of trouble with her because of his greed so Anansi is a very human spirit he has many different sides to him um, and he 
is also known as the God of Wisdom. So while most people don't see him as a religious figure in certain places, whether it's in a combs, um, so that religion or Winti or even Karaku's big drum dance, he does have a spiritual element to him. I think he's even recognized as one of the Gide Loa within Haitian Vodun. Um, so what I know of the Gide Loa, they have to do with the dead, with the ancestors. So a lot of different information about Anansi. There's a lot of information about Anansi out there that you can find. Um, so I'm really not going to get into it that much. But um, that is kind of a basis on the Cromanti people, um, how they kind of function in the broader West Indies, and then how they function in Karaku. And the song I'm going to focus on, specifically the story that I've written based on the song, is this one I mentioned that leads the tradition. Um, it is called Anansio Saribaba. And this song is one of the oldest songs in the tradition, um, which is shown by the words within it, which are in an unknown language. People have ideas of where it comes from. Obviously, it has Cromanti roots, so it likely comes from one of the languages associated with that group of people. However, as one might assume, based on the fact that this is on, you know, a colonial territory, so plantation lifestyle, there are a lot of things mixing and moving about. But the general understanding of the song is that they are asking Anansi for forgiveness. Um, Baba is a, a commonly used term for father. So Father Anansi. And Sari, it's spelled T-S-A-R-I, not Sari in English, but spelled in a different way, um, is essentially functioning for the same thing. So it's quite interesting to see parallels between this unknown word and our own English vocabulary. Um as well as the fact that thus many of these songs are written and sung in what was known as Patois in the islands of Grenada, Petite Martinique, and Caracou. So French Creole, essentially, not the English Creole that is spoken today. So I know there's a lot of different things going on. It might be hard for you to track in your mind. But essentially, no one knows the full translation of this song, but people understand the meaning and the importance. It is called, it is done and sung First, to every big drum dance to absolve the community of their sins and their transgressions. And so I wrote um, a story called Anansi's Forgiveness, inspired by this song. And I'm going to play a recording of this song first and then get into the story so you guys can kind of paint that full picture. So that's a recording I have of Anansio Saribaba. But as I said, the language of Karaku and Grenada has changed because of the possession of the island between the French and the British. And that in turn caused a loss of what is known of the tradition um, because people simply did not speak the language anymore, was not passed down. So the lyrics actually continue on further and they say, Fenwa contra Nenen, Simwen Marie Nenen. And so that translates to, if I have done anything wrong, Godmother, Godfather, um, if I deserve it, Godmother or Godfather, pardon me. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And that kind of ties into the theme of the Beg Pardon song. So I wanted to add that um, without getting too deep into it, without making this episode too long, um, and now we're going to get into the story that I wrote called Anansi's Forgiveness. So before I get into the story, I already know I talked about the inspiration being um, this song from the Big Drum Dance. Um, but in terms of creating the story, I actually wrote within two languages to kind of make the historical um, background or the historical setting more realistic. So in this time, 
Um, the story set in the 1800s. Caracou and Grenada are still considered French colonies, and people are still speaking Patois, also known as French Creole. Um, I don't have a direct translation to Grenada's version of Creole. They even pronounce it um, without the R, so it's Kale. And the dialect of Grenadian um, French Kale is different than Haiti's. But because I do not have that direct translation, I used Haitian Creole um, as the dialogue for the characters, especially um, for their internal thoughts. I did translate this afterwards, so you'll hear me speaking to the best of my ability in French Creole. Um, and then translating it right after, whether it's a character's thought or whether it's their actual words that they're speaking, because I wanted to kind of make it um, more authentic. And I recognize this might make it more difficult for people to listen to or for people to understand. It might require a different element of patience or level of patience. But I think I want to stick to what I plan for this podcast, which is diversifying um, readership. And literature, and part of that comes with adding different languages and adding different cultural and historical contexts. So, just wanted to prepare you guys for the presence of Haitian Creole, which is supposed to be Grenadian Creole. Um, and then I also wanted to add a disclaimer that while these stories are based on and inspired by the Big Drum songs, they are not the true origins of these songs. These stories are not how these songs came to be, and these stories are not necessarily what these songs are about. So I wanted to add that disclaimer. I'm going to add a disclaimer like this in every episode, if I can remember it, because I do not want to convolute fiction with fact, and I do not want to convolute my work with an actual tradition that is very important um, and that has existed in a relatively untouched way for hundreds of years since its um, inception due to the transatlantic slave trade and the presence of African people in Karakou. So I just wanted to make those statements clear, give some insight into how I crafted the story, and I hope you guys like it. In the beginning, there was not light and darkness, nor wind and earth, nor water and fire. In the beginning, there was no duality, no either or. In the beginning, there was a spiral, a ceaseless wheel connected by strands of silk. It is on this plane that everything exists, connected by wisps of thread and dewdrops. It is here that things take place. The year is 1822. The sun beamed high and hot, burning the ground and trees with its rays. A cool breeze rose up from the warm sea at the base of the mountainous island offering brief relaxation for those forced to labor. A young man, his dark skin glistening with sweat, paused in his work, gazing at the tropical canopy above him. Back to work, called out a British overseer, his eye settling on the slave. Are you listening? Do I need to come over there, Kwaku? Kwaku shook his head. No, Master Harold. With a blank face, Kwaku got back to his work slicing sugarcane and stuffing its long stalk into his straw sack on his back. He watched from the corner of his eye as the overseer crept away, looking for another person to harass. When ka trave tan yon exclave kunye, amen wen prav vive tan yon gua tale, Kwaku whispered to himself in patois. I may work like a slave now, but I will live like a king soon. He groaned as he stood back up, stretching quickly. If it even looked like he was relaxing, he would be strung up and beaten. The slavers did not care if a slave was young or old, healthy or sick. There was no excuse to be slow or work poorly. Shouldering his heavy sack, Kwaku walked on a dusty trail up the sloping hill of the sugarcane fields to an old wagon chained to a wooden post. He glanced around at another overseer, one he recognized as Master Lucas. Unlike Harold, who was a barrel of a man, Lucas was thin and meager, his face skeletal. Kwaku quickly averted his eyes as he dumped the sugar cane into the wagon. With his head down, Kwaku returned to his post and began to harvest more sugar cane. Excuse me, said an old man. Excuse me, master. Kwaku looked up, but remained low to the ground, keeping himself hidden. He watched as an old man turned from his work his frail body trembling as he spoke to one of the white men. A 
Eskize met? The old man repeated. Simwen gen dua muenta renmen mande uyon fav. If I may, I would like to ask a favor. The sharp clap of skin against skin popped against Kwaku's eardrums as Master Harold slapped the old man across the face, knocking him to the ground. Enough! Speak English or don't speak at all! Kwaku sucked his teeth as the old man slowly recovered, taking great care to dust himself off. Uvie mon fou, you old fool, Kwaku thought to himself. After what seemed like ages, the old man finally seemed ready to speak. You should never have done that, he said, pronouncing the English words easily in his deep accent. Harold's eyes widened in shock, then anger, and he hit the old man again, causing him to double over. Kwaku's muscles twitched as his body fought to intervene. However, his mind held him in place. The sound of fists colliding with the old man's body grew louder and louder, and soon, every black face in the immediate vicinity was watching. Not a single soul moved forward. Kwaku was close enough to hear the old man's fragile breathing. He could see bits of his battered body through the dense foliage and a thin stream of blood as it snaked its way through the dark soil to his feet. Harold huffed with exertion, the blood stains on his shirt swelling and shrinking with every breath. He wiped his brow, smearing blood and dirt onto it and cursing. It was then that he noticed the watching eyes. Get back to work! Somebody bury this fool! Harold continued to curse under his breath, walking away. Slowly, Kwaku approached the old man. He looked even worse up close. The bridge of his nose had been smashed flat, broken under the white man's boot. Blood pooled under the body, littered by teeth. One of his eyes had swollen completely shut, and still the old man breathed. Kwaku knelt at the old man's side. Bon dieu, seigneur, baba, mwen wuget, mwen selon yash. Good lord, father, I'm sorry, I'm a coward. The old man gasped, his lips touching several times as he tried to form words. Silam petit, parouguet, mwen padonu, anansi padonu, sadia ba paye poussa, mwen fesamon. Hush, child, don't be sorry. I forgive you. Anansi forgives you. That devil will pay for this. I swear it. Kwaku's heart dropped as the old man let out his final breath. He gently closed his eyes before closing his own. Anansio, eh, Anansio, sorry, Baba, he said, starting the song of mourning. The melody within Kwaku's voice rose over the sugarcane fields and reverberated through the land. Anansio, eh, Anansio, sorry, Baba, several voices answered back, shocking Kwaku. He opened his eyes and stood preparing to hoist the corpse onto his shoulder. To his surprise and relief, several men appeared from the thick sugar cane. They locked eyes, and together they lifted the body, their voices rising in sync. Somewhere in the distance, the deep booming of a bula drum began to echo, rapidly followed by the rhythmic beating of hoes and other tools. Anansio, eh, Anansio, sorry, Baba. Anansio, sorry, Baba. Anansio Saribaba, the people continued to sing. Diabla Tunen, Kwaku said, breaking the song's pattern. The devil is back. Harold had returned, and he was not alone. Lucas stood to his left, and another man, seemingly young for an overseer, stood on Harold's right. Swords and pistols hung at their sides. Harold stepped forward menacingly. Enough hollering! I'm not going to warn you again. Get back to work or you will end up like this worthless mule. Anansio, eh. Anansio, sorry, Baba. Anansio, sorry, Baba. Anansio, sorry, Baba. The enslaved people continued to sing with increased fervor. Kill them, Harold yelled. Kill them. The other overseers raised their pistols and all of a sudden their faces grew blood red. Veins bulged in their necks and foreheads, and they began to foam at the mouth. The men collapsed like dominoes, and Kwaku nudged one of them with his foot. Screaming, he jumped back as several spiders crawled out from underneath the bodies. The spiders then huddled together, concealing themselves within a ball of silk. 
Kwaku and the other men watched as the cocoon grew, wriggling as it did so. The cocoon swelled and stretched until it reached the men's height. A slit opened in its front, and Kwaku and the others watched as a brown hand shot out. The hand peeled away the silk, revealing the same man as before. His wounds were no more, and the ground where his corpse had laid was clear. Usei Anansi, you're Anansi. Kwaku instantly dropped to his knees, and the other slaves followed suit. The old man, Anansi, rested a hand on his shoulder. Upa bes muen pitumu. Do not fear, children. Muen tompe mesi sa yo pu yo take mpu umkatuye yo epi libre. I tricked those men into attacking me so I could kill them and free you. Men apre tuton sa aloen la kenu uterwele m. Even after all this time away from our home, you called on me. You remembered me. U songe muen, you remembered me. Songe ju sa a epi chante chante muen, an pwemwi nan chak resemble men, pum ka pardon aki. Remember this day and sing my song first at every gathering, so that I may pardon you and bless you. We Anansi, Messi, said Kwaku. And it was from that day forward that the song, Anansio Saribaba, was sung at every Saraka in Karaku. That's the end of the story, everyone. Thank you for listening. If you have made it to this far um, within this podcast episode, I know this one ran kind of long just because I wanted to talk about so many different things um, and make sure it all made sense for you. Um, So I tried my best to explain everything and put it together in an organized way. Um, I hope that the story was enjoyable, um, even with the presence of another language that you might not know I wanted to just try something I had done before um in a story that I no longer have um based on a um a work I had read by a Haitian um author I wrote that nearly two years ago and I cannot find that story but essentially I did the same thing where I wrote in Haitian Creole um with the help of my friend Google Translate and then translated it to kind of create a certain cultural environment um, and make it authentic. So I hope that that was enjoyable to any Creole speakers, whether you're Haitian or from Martinique or Guadeloupe. um, I apologize if my pronunciation of these words is really, really bad. Um, I took French for many years and obviously Creole and French, they're similar, but not the same. That's why they are different languages. Um, And I'm learning what I can um, about Creole, Grenada's Creole. Um, But I'm learning from books. I'm not learning from speakers because there's not many speakers left. So I'm at a disadvantage here. I hope you guys cut me some slack. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. And please tune in to the other episodes if you haven't already. And if you have, don't forget to follow me on Twitter, on Instagram, on Medium, at Rafiki. Check out my writing. Check out my book. And I hope to see you guys next time.